Saint Bartholomew's Eve by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Read by Anna Christensen. Chapter Twenty Two, Reunited. Philip took clothes with him in his saddlebags of gayer colors than those worn by the Huguenots, and as soon as they were beyond the district where the Protestants were in the ascendant, he put these on instead of those in which he had started. They rode fast, and on the fifth day after leaving La Rochelle, they entered Versailles. No question had been asked them by the way, and they rode into the courtyard of the principal inn, and there stabled their horses. "'Your animals look as if they needed rest, sir,' the landlord said as they dismounted. "'Yes, we have come from the south and have pressed them too much.' I have business in Paris which will occupy me for a few days. Therefore I will leave them here for a rest. I suppose you can furnish me with two horses to take me as far as St. Cloud, and a man to bring them back again? Certainly I can, sir, and your horses will be well looked after here. Then we will go on the first thing in the morning. Have the horses ready by that time. The next morning they rode to St. Cloud, dismounted there, and handed over the horses to the man who had ridden behind them. Then they crossed by the bridge over the river, and entering the wood that bordered the scene, put on the disguises they had brought with them, concealing their clothes among some thick bushes, and then walked on into Paris. They put up at a small inn, and as they partook of a meal, listened to the talk of those around them. But it was not here that they could expect to gather the news they required. They heard the names of many of those who had been killed, that these were all leaders of distinction, and as soon as they had finished their food they started for the Louvre. Now we are here. I don't see how we are going to find out what we want, Pierre. Philip said after they had stood for some time looking at the gate, through which numbers of gentlemen entered or left the palace. "'It will take some little time, sir. I think the best plan will be for me to purchase some clothes suitable for the lackey of a gentleman of rank. I can get them easily enough, for the shops will be full of garments bought of those who took part in the massacre. Then I shall make acquaintance with one of the lackeys of the court, and with plenty of good wine I shall no doubt be able to learn all that he knows as to what took place at the Louvre.' At that moment a gentleman passed them. That is Count Louis de Fontaine, the cousin of the man I killed in that duel. I am sure it is he. By what I saw of him, he is a gentleman and a man of honor, and by no means ill-disposed towards us. I will speak to him. Do you stay here until I return? Pierre was about to protest, but Philip had already left him and was following the Count. He walked until they were in a comparatively quiet place, and then walked on and overtook him. Count Louis de Fontaine, he said. The nobleman turned in surprise at being addressed by this big countryman. Philip went on. Our acquaintance was but a short one, Count. It was some four years ago at Arguet that I met you, and had the misfortune to have trouble with your cousin, Count Raoul. But short as it was, it was sufficient to show me that you are a gentleman of heart, and to encourage me now to throw myself on your generosity. Are you the gentleman who fought my cousin, and afterwards escaped from the castle? I am, Count. I am here upon no plot or conspiracy simply to endeavour to ascertain the fate of my cousin, Francois de Laville, who was with the King of Navarre on that fearful night a fortnight since. His mother is distracted at hearing no news of him, while to me he is as a brother. I effected my own escape, and have, as you see, returned in disguise to ascertain his fate. I am unable to obtain a list of those who were murdered, and seeing you, I felt that it would be safe to rely upon your honour, and to ask you to give me the news I require. I will fall back now, for it might be thought strange that a noble should be talking to a peasant. But I pray you to lead the way to some quiet spot, where I can speak with you unnoticed. My lodging is in the next street. Follow me, and I will take you up to my room. As soon as they had entered the lodging, the Count said, You are not deceived. I am incapable of betraying a trust imposed upon me. 
I bear you no malice for the slaying of my cousin, for indeed the quarrel was not of your seeking. Still less do I feel hostility towards you on the ground of your religion, for I doubt not from what you say that you are of the reformed faith. I lament most deep and bitterly the events that have taken place, events which dishonor our nation in the eyes of all Europe. I have not the pleasure of knowing your name. I am the Chevalier Philip Fletcher, an Englishman by birth, though related on my mother's side to the family of the Count de Laville. I have heard your name, sir, as that of one of the bravest gentlemen in the following of Admiral Coligny. Now as to your cousin, his fate is uncertain. He was certainly cut down by the hired wretches of the Guises. They passed on in search of other victims, believing him to be dead. But his body was not afterwards found, and the general opinion is that he either recovered and crawled away, or is still in some hiding place, or that he is concealed somewhere in the palace itself. Search was made next day, but without success. Some think he may have reached the streets, and been there killed, and his body, like so many others, thrown into the scene. I trust that this is not the case, but I have no grounds for biding you hope. At any rate, you have given me cause to hope, sir, and I thank you heartily. It is something to know that he is not certainly dead. Can you tell me on which side of the palace was his chamber? I saw him there frequently, but did not on any occasion go with him to his room. It was on the side facing the river. It was near that of the King of Navarre. Thank you, Count. It is but a small clue with which to commence my search, but it is at least something. You say that the palace itself has been searched? Yes, on the following morning it was thoroughly searched for fugitives in hiding. But for all that he may be concealed there by some servant whose good will he had gained. Is there anything else that I can tell you? I may say that I have personally no influence whatever at court. I have never failed to express myself strongly in reference to the policy of persecution, and I am only here now in obedience to the royal orders to present myself at court. There is nothing else, Count. I thank you most sincerely for having thus respected my disguise, and for the news you have given me. Philip returned to the Louvre and joined Paris, who was impatiently waiting. I followed you for some distance, sir, but when I saw you address the Count, and then follow quietly behind him, I saw you were right, and that he was to be trusted, and so returned to await your coming. Have you obtained any sure news from him? Philip repeated his conversation with the Count. I will wager he is hidden somewhere in the palace, Paris said. Badly wounded as he must have been, he could not have hoped to make his escape through the streets knowing no one who would have dared to give him refuge. It is far more likely that some of the palace servants came upon him, just as he was recovering, and hid him away. He was always bright and pleasant, fond of a jest, and it may well be that some woman or other took pity on him. The question is, how are we to find out who she is? It is as likely to be a man as a woman, Paris. No, Paris said positively. Women are wonderfully tender-hearted, and are not so afraid of consequences as men are. A man might feel some pity at seeing a gentleman so sorely wounded, but he would not risk his own life to shelter him, while any woman would do it without a hesitation. It may be a lady of noble family, or a poor kitchen wench, but that it is a woman I would wager my life. It seems hopeless to try to find out who it is, Philip said despondently. Not hopeless, sir, though doubtless difficult. With your permission, I will undertake this part of the task. I will get myself up as a working man out of employment, and there are many such and will hang about near that little gate. It is a servant's entrance, and I shall be able to watch every woman that comes out. But what good will watching do? It may do no good, sir, but yet it may help. A woman with such a secret as that on her mind will surely show some signs of it upon her face. She will either have a scared look, or an anxious look. She will not walk with an easy step. The next morning Paris took up his position opposite the gate, 
but had no news that night to report to his master, nor had he on the second or third, but on the fourth he returned radiant. Philip sprung from his saddle and grasped his faithful follower by the hand. Thank God for the news, Pierre. I had almost given up hope. How did you discover him? Just as I expected, sir. I have seen in the last three days scores of women come out, but none of them needed a second look. Some were intent on their own finery, others were clearly bent on shopping. Some looked up and down the street for a lover who ought to have been waiting for them. Not one of these had a secret of life and death on her mind. But this afternoon there came out a young woman with a pale face and an anxious look. She glanced nervously up and down the street, not as one expecting to meet a friend, but as if she feared an enemy. After a moment's hesitation, she crossed the road and walked along with an indecisive air, more than once glancing behind her as if afraid of being followed. This is my lady, I said to myself, and keeping some distance behind and on the opposite side of the street, I followed her. She soon turned off into a side street. Once or twice she paused, looked into a shop, hesitated, and then went on again. You may be sure I marked the spots, and was not surprised to find that in each case it was an apothecary's before which she had hesitated. At last, after looking round again timidly, she entered one, and when I came up I also went in. She gave a nervous start. I asked to be supplied with a pot of salve for a wound, and the man helped me from one he had just placed on the counter before him. I paid for it and left. Two or three minutes later I saw her come out. Whatever she had bought she had hidden under her cloak. Up to this time she had walked fast, but now she loitered and looked at the wares displayed in the stalls. You are in no hurry to go back, I said to myself. You have got what you wanted, and you do not wish to attract attention by returning to the palace after so short an absence. At last, when she was in a quiet spot, I walked quickly up to her. Mademoiselle, I said, taking off my hat, I am a friend of the gentleman for whom you have bought that salve and other matters. She became very white, but she said stoutly, I don't know what you're talking about, sir, and if you molest a modest young woman in the streets, I shall appeal to the town constable for protection. I repeat, I said, that I am a friend of the gentleman for whom you have just bought the materials for dressing his wounds. I am the servant of his cousin, the Chevalier Fletcher, and the name of your patient is Count Francois de Laville. She looked at me stupefied with astonishment, and stammered, how did, how did you know that? It is enough, mademoiselle, that I know it, I answered. My master and I have come to Paris expressly to find Monsieur de Laville, and when we have found him to aid him to make his escape, do not hesitate to confide in me, for only so shall we succeed in the object of our journey. What is your master's Christian name? she asked, still doubtful. It is Philip, I said. She clasped her hands together. The good God be praised, she exclaimed. It was of Philip he spoke when he was so ill. He was unconscious. Surely it is God that has sent you to me. It has been terrible for me to bear my secret alone. Let us walk farther, I said, before you tell me more. There are too many people passing here, and if they notice the tears on your cheeks, they may suspect me of ill-treating you, and may ask troublesome questions. After a few minutes' walk, we came to a quiet square. Let us sit down on this stone seat, I said. We can talk freely here. Now tell me all about it. I am one of the bedmakers of the palace, and it fell to me to sweep the room occupied by the Count de Laville. Once or twice he came in while I was there and spoke pleasantly, and I thought what a handsome fellow he was, and said to myself what a pity it was that he was a heretic. When that terrible night came, we were all aroused from our sleep, and many of us ran down in a fright to see what was the matter. We heard shouts and cries and the clashing of swords. As I passed Monsieur de Laville's room, the door was open. I looked in. Three soldiers lay dead on the floor, and near them the Count, whom I thought was also dead. I ran to him and lifted his head, and sprinkled water on his face from our flagon on the table. He opened his eyes and made an effort to get to his feet. 
I was frightened out of my life at it all, and I said to him, What does it all mean, monsieur? It is a massacre, he said faintly. Do you not hear the firing in the streets and the din in the palace? They will return and finish me. I thank you for what you have done, but it is useless. Then I thought for a moment. Can you walk, monsieur? Barely, he replied. Lean on my shoulder, monsieur, I said. I will help you up the stairs. I know of a place where you may lie concealed. With great difficulty I helped him up a staircase that was but little used, and got him to the top. Several times, he said, it is of no use. I am wounded to death. But he still held on. I slept in a little garret in the roof with two other servants, and at the end of the passage was a large lumber store. It was into this that I took him. Nobody ever went there, and it was safe except in case of special search. I laid him down and then moved some of the heavy cabinets and chests at the farther end, a short distance from the wall, so that there would be space enough for him to lie behind them. Here I made a bed with some old cushions from the couches, got him into the place, first bandaging his wound as well as I could in the faint light that came in through a dormer window. I fetched him a jug of water from my room and placed it beside him and then moved the furniture so as to close up the spot at which he had entered. Against it I piled up tables and chairs, so that to anyone who did not examine it very closely, it would seem that the heavy furniture was against the wall. There he has been ever since. Two or three times a day I have managed to steal away from my work, to carry him water and food that I brought from the kitchen, when we were down to our meals. For a time I thought he would die. For four days he did not know me. He talked much to himself, and several times he mentioned the name of Philip, and called upon him to aid him against the murderers. Fortunately, he was so weak that he could not speak much above a whisper, and there was no fear of his voice being heard. The day after I hid him, the whole place was searched to see if any Huguenots were concealed. But up in the attic they searched but carelessly, seeing that we slept three or four in each room, and no one could well be hidden there without all knowing it. They did enter the lumber room, but I had carefully washed the floor where he had lain, and as I could not get out the stains of blood, I pushed heavy chests over them. I was in my room when they would search the lumber rooms and my heart stood still until I heard them come out, and knew that they had found nothing. For the last ten days the Count has gained strength. His wounds are still very sore and painful, but they are beginning to heal. I have bought wine for him, and can always manage to conceal enough food from the table to suffice for his wants. He can walk now, though feebly, and spoke to me but today about making his escape. It would be easy enough to get him out of the palace if I had a lackey's attire for him. I could lead him down private staircases, till near the door from which we came out of the palace. But I had little money for I had sent off most of my wages to my mother only a day or two before the royal wedding. Still, we might have managed that. I could have borrowed some on some pretense or other. He is, however, too weak to travel, and the effort to do so might cause his wounds to burst out afresh. But now that his cousin has come, all will be well. Where is he wounded? I asked. He has four wounds. One is in the head, another on the neck. One is a stab in the body that must have narrowly missed his heart, and the other is a sword thrust through his arm. "'But how, monsieur, did you know,' she asked, "'that it is I who have hidden the Count?' "'I told her that I had been watching for four days, "'feeling sure that the Count was hidden in the palace. "'But hers was the first face that showed anxiety, "'and that when I saw her by cell at the apothecaries, "'I felt sure that it was she who was sheltering the Count. "'And have you arranged anything, Paris? Philip asked anxiously. "'Only this much, sir, that tomorrow evening, "'as soon as it is dark, she will leave the palace with Monsieur Francois. "'That will give us plenty of time to make our plans.' which will be easy enough. We have but to take an apartment and bring him up into it. No one need know that there are more than ourselves there, and we can nurse him for a few days until he is fit to ride. Then we have only to get him a disguise like that in which we entered. We can hide him in the wood, go on to where we hid our clothes, put them on instead of our disguises, enter St. Cloud, go on to Versailles, fetch the three horses, and return to him, with, of course, a suit of clothes for himself. 
there was no difficulty in hiring two rooms in a quiet street suits of clothes suitable for a court lackey were purchased and these were given by Pierre to the girl when she came out in the afternoon philip had accompanied Pierre to meet her my good girl he said i cannot tell you how deeply i feel the kindness that you have shown my cousin you have risked your life to save him and that i am sure without the smallest thought of reward still so good an action must not pass without acknowledgment though no money can express the amount of our gratitude toward you i do not want to be paid sir i had no thought of money i know that philip replied but you must allow us to show our gratitude in the only way we can in the first place what is your name annette riol sir well annette here are fifty crowns in this purse it is all that i can spare at present but be assured that the countess de laville will send you at the first opportunity a sum that will be a good dowry for you when you find a husband if the messenger by whom it is sent asks for you by your name at the door of the palace by which you usually leave it will he obtain access to you yes sir the porter at the door knows me and if he should be changed whoever is there will inquire of the maids if he asks for annette riol one of the chamberwomen in the north wing of the palace very well annette you may rely that a messenger will come i cannot say how soon that must depend on other circumstances but where do you come from from portier sir my parents live on a little farm called la mocour two miles north of the city then annette the best thing for you to do is to leave your present employment and to journey down home it will be easy to send from la rochelle to portier and unless the place is besieged as it is likely to be before long you will soon hear from us probably the messenger will have visited the farm before you reach it i will do that sir the girl said gratefully i never liked this life and since that terrible night i have scarcely had any sleep i seem to hear noises and cries just as they say the king does and shall be indeed glad to be away but i cannot come out with the count this evening we only get out once in five days and it was only as a special favour that i have been let out now i will come with him to the door talking with him as if he were a lackey of my acquaintance at the hour agreed upon philip and Pierre, stationed a few yards from the door saw a man and a woman appear the girl made some laughing remark and then went back into the palace the man came out he made two quick steps and then stumbled and philip ran forward grasping him firmly under the arm you were just in time philip another step and i should have been down i am weaker than i thought i was and the fresh air is well nigh too much for me i have had a close shave of it philip and had been nearer death in that attic up there than i was ever on a field of battle what a good little woman that was i owe my life to her it is good of you coming here to find me old fellow you are always getting me out of scrapes you remember that affair at toulouse ah thank you pierre but mind that arm you have got hold of is the weak one now how far have we got to go philip for i warn you that i am nearly at the end of my strength we will get into a quiet street first francois and there you shall have a drink from a flask of excellent wine i have here then we will help you along you can lean as heavily as you like upon us you are no great weight now and any one who notices us helping you will suppose that we are conveying a drunken comrade to his home but in spite of all the assistance they could give him francois was terribly exhausted when he reached the lodging here philip and Pierre bandaged his wounds far more securely and firmly than his nurse had been able to do and the next morning when he awoke he declared himself ready to start at once it was a week however before philip would hear of his making such an effort but by that time good eating and drinking had done so much for him that he thought he would be able to stand the fatigue of the journey and the next morning they started disguised as peasants they passed out through the gates unquestioned francois was left in the wood with the clothes they had purchased for him Paris and philip then went on and found their bundles undisturbed obtained their three horses at versailles 
and riding back soon had francois mounted the wound on his head was so far healed that it was no longer necessary to bandage it and although he looked pale and weak there was nothing about him to attract special notice they journeyed by easy stages south lengthening the distance gradually as francois gained strength and riding fast towards the end so as to reach la rochelle before an army under marshal Bayreau sat down before it it was evening when they arrived and after putting up their horses they made their way to monsieur patrom's philip mounted the stairs leaving francois to follow him slowly i shall not take more than two or three minutes to break the news but i must repair your mother a little francois she has not said much but i know she had but little hope though she bore up so bravely the countess was sitting with claire and the merchant's daughter it was the first time philip had seen mademoiselle de valacour since they first arrived at la rochelle she was dressed now in deep mourning a flush of bright colour spread over her face as philip entered as in duty bound he turned first towards the countess and saluted her affectionately and then turned to claire and would have kissed her hand but the countess said tut tut philip that is not the way to salute your betrothed and philip drawing her to him kissed her for the first time since they had betrothed themselves to each other in the hut in paris and then saluted mademoiselle patrom we have been under no uneasiness expecting you philip the countess said for claire and myself both look upon you as having a charmed life has your mission been successful it has aunt beyond my hopes and first i must ask your pardon for having deceived you deceived me philip in what way my mission was an assumed one and in reality Paris and i journeyed to paris a cry broke from the countess's lips to paris philip and your mission has been successful you have heard something i have done more aunt i have found him the lord be praised for all his mercies burst from the lips of the countess and she threw herself on philip's neck and burst into a passion of tears the first she had shed since he brought the news from paris courage aunt philip whispered he glanced towards the door claire understood him and ran to open it francois came quietly in mother and the countess with a cry of joy ran into his arms the french army appeared before the town the following day and the siege was at once commenced with marshal Byrou were the dukes of anjou and alacon the king of navarre and the prince of conde who had been compelled to accompany him the siege made but little progress the defences were strong and the huguenots were not content only to repel assaults but made fierce sallies causing a considerable loss to the besiegers to the surprise of the defenders they heard that the count de la noue had arrived in camp with a mission from the king he had remained a captive in the camp of the duke of elva after the surrender of mon and so had happily escaped the massacre of st bartholomew he had then been released and had gone to france to arrange his ransom the king who was now tormented with remorse sent for him and entreated him as a personal favour to go as his commissioner to la rochelle and to endeavour to bring about a cessation of hostilities authorising him to grant almost any terms de la noue undertook the task unwillingly and only upon condition that he would be no party to inducing them to surrender and thus perfectly satisfied with the guarantees for the observance of any treaty that might be made when a flag of truce came forward and announced that monsieur de la noue had arrived on the part of the king the news was at first received with incredulity then there was a burst of indignation at what was considered the treachery of the court he was refused permission to enter the town but after some parleying a party went out to have an interview with him outside the gate the meeting was unsatisfactory some of the citizens pretended that they did not recognize de la noue saying that the person they knew was a brave gentleman faithful to his religion and one who certainly would not be found in a catholic camp a few days later however the negotiations were renewed 
the count pointed out that they could not hope finally to resist the whole force of france and that it would be far better for them to make terms now than when in an extremity but he was able to give no guarantees that were considered acceptable by the citizens de la nuit's position was exceedingly difficult but at last the citizens perceived that he was still loyal to the cause and as he had beforehand received the king's authority to accept the governorship of the town the people of la rochelle agreed to receive him in that position provided that no troops entered with him the negotiations fell through and the siege was renewed with vigour de la nuit now taking the lead in the defence his military experience being of immense assistance very many of the nobles and gentlemen in the catholic army were present as a matter of duty they fought with the usual gallantry of their race but for the most part abhorred the massacre of saint bartholomew and were as strongly of the opinion as were the huguenots of france and the protestants throughout europe that it was an indelible disgrace upon france their feeling was shown in many ways among others maurevel the murderer of de Moy, and the man who had attempted the assassination of the admiral having accompanied the duke of anjou into the camp no one would associate with him or suffer him to encamp near or even go on guard with him in the trenches and the duke was in consequence obliged to appoint him to the command of a small fort which was erected on the seashore incessant fighting went on but the position was a singular one the duke of alencon had been an unwilling spectator of the massacre of saint bartholomew he was jealous of anjou and restless and discontented and he contemplated going over to the huguenots the king of navarre and his cousin conde and the huguenot gentlemen with him were equally anxious to leave the camp where they were closely watched and de la nuit while conducting the defence occasionally visited the royal camp and endeavoured to bring about a reconciliation he was much rejoiced on his first arrival at the city to find both francois and philip there for he had believed that both had fallen in the massacre he took great interest in philip's love affair and made inquiries in the royal camp where he learned that mademoiselle de Bellecour was supposed to have perished with her father in the massacre and that the estates had already been bestowed by the king on one of his favourites i should say that if our cause should finally triumph the count de lenouis said a portion at least of her estates will be restored to her but in that case the king would certainly claim to dispose of her hand i care nothing for the estates nor does she philip answered she will go with me to england as soon as the fighting here is over and if things look hopeless we shall embark and endeavour to break through the blockade of the king's ships even had she the estates she would not remain in france which has become hateful to her she is now fully restored to health and we shall shortly be married when de la nuit next went out to the french camp he sent a dispatch to the king saying that mademoiselle de Valacour had escaped the massacre and was in la rochelle he pointed out that as long as she lived the huguenots would if at any time they became strong enough to make terms insist upon the restoration of her estates as well as those of others that had been confiscated he said that he had had a private interview with her and had learned that she intended if a proper provision should be secured for her to retire to england he therefore prayed his majesty as a favour to him and as an act of justice to require the nobleman to whom he had granted the estates to pay her a handsome sum then she would make a formal renunciation of the estates in his favour a month later he received the royal answer saying that the king had graciously taken the case of mademoiselle de valacour into his consideration and that he had spoken to the gentleman to whom he had granted her estate and to the duke of guise whose near relative he was and that these noblemen had placed in his hands the sum of ten thousand livres, for which was enclosed an order payable by the treasury of the army upon the signature of Monsieur de la Nuit and Mademoiselle de Valacour, and upon the handing over of the document of renunciation signed by her. Monsieur de la Nuit had told Philip nothing of these negotiations. Having obtained from Claire the necessary signature, he, one evening, 
on his return from the wheel camp, came into the room where they were sitting, followed by two servants carrying small but heavy bags. Mademoiselle, he said, when the servants had placed these on the table and retired, I have pleasure in handing you these. Philip, Mademoiselle de Valacour will not come to you as a dowerless bride, which indeed would be a shame for a daughter of so old and noble a family. Mademoiselle has signed a formal renunciation of her rights to the estate of her late father, and by some slight good offices on my part, his majesty has obtained for her, from the man to whom he has granted the estates of Alacour, the sum of ten thousand livres, a poor fraction indeed of the estate she should have inherited, and yet a considerable sum itself. A week later, Sir Philip Fletcher and Claire de Valacour were married in the principal church of La Rochelle. The Count de la Nuy, as a friend and companion in arms of her father, gave her away, and all the Huguenot noblemen and gentlemen in the town were present. Three weeks later, a great assault upon the bastion, l'Evangelie, having been repulsed, the siege languished, the besieging army having suffered greatly both from death in the trenches and assaults, and by the attacks of fever. The Count of Montgomery arrived from England with some reinforcements. De la Nuy resigned to him the governorship and left the city. The Prince of Anjou shortly afterwards received the crown of Poland, and left the camp with a number of nobles to proceed to his new kingdom, and the army became so weakened that the siege was practically discontinued, and the blockading fleet being withdrawn, Philip and his wife took passage in a ship for England, Paris accompanying them. I may come some day with Francois, Philip, the countess said, but not till I see that the cause is altogether lost. I still have faith that we shall win tolerance. They say that the king is mad. Anjou has gone to Poland. Alenco is still unmarried. I believe that it is God's will that Henri of Navarre should come to the throne of France. And if so, there will be peace and toleration in France. So long as the Huguenot sword is unsheathed, I shall remain here. Philip had written to acquaint his father and mother of his marriage, and his intention to return with his wife as soon as the siege was over. There was therefore but little surprise, although great joy, when he arrived. He had sent off Paris on horseback as soon as the ship dropped anchor at Gravesend, and followed more leisurely himself. They were met a few miles out of Canterbury by a messenger from his uncle, telling them to ride straight to his new estate, where he would be met by his father and mother, the latter of whom had started the day before in a litter for the house, and that his uncle and aunt would be there also. Upon Philip and Claire's arrival they were received with much rejoicing. Monsieur Vaillant had sent round messengers to all the tenantry to assemble, and had taken over a number of his own workmen, who had decorated the avenue leading to the house with flags, and thrown several arches across it. "'It is a small place in comparison to Valacour, Claire,' Philip said as they drove up to the house. "'It is a fine chateau, Philip, but now that I have you it would not matter to me were it but a hut. And, oh, what happiness to think that we have done with persecution and terror and war, and that I may worship God freely and openly. He has been good to me indeed, and if I were not perfectly happy, I should be the most ungrateful of women.' Claire's dowry was spent in enlarging the estate, and Philip became one of the largest landowners in the country. He went no more to the wars, save that, when the Spanish Armada threatened the religion and freedom of England, he embarked as a volunteer on one of Drake's ships, and took part in the fierce fighting that freed England forever from the yoke of Rome, and in no small degree aided both in securing the independence of Protestant Holland, and of seating Henri of Navarre firmly upon the throne of France. Say to pay two or three visits to Philip and her sisters, the Countess de la Ville and her son did not come to England. Francois fought at Ivry, and the many other battles that took place before Henri of Navarre became undisputed king of France, and then became one of the leading nobles of his court. Philip settled a small pension on the four men-at-arms who had followed his fortunes and shared his perils, and they returned to their native Gascony, where they settled down, two being no longer fit for service, 
and the other two having had enough fighting for a lifetime. The countess had, soon after Francois returned to La Rochelle, sent a sum of money to the girl who had saved his life, that sufficed to make her the wealthiest heiress in her native village in Poitou, and she married a well-to-do farmer, the countess herself standing a godmother to their first child, to their immeasurable pride and gratification. Pierre remained to the end of his life in Philip's service, taking to himself an English wife, and being a great favorite with the children of Philip and Claire, who were never tired of listening to the adventures he had gone through with their father and mother in the religious wars in France. End of chapter 22 End of St. Bartholomew's Eve Recorded December 2008